In this installment of Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial, we analyze the testimony of Mtogozi Sitwala, Senzo Meiwa's close friend who was with the football star when he took his very last breath. The trial finally seems to be making some progress, or is it? We also discuss a former lawyer in this matter, now disbarred advocate Malisela Defo. This is Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial. My name is Khomuzo Modise. I am a member of the Eyewitness News team and I am the lead reporter for the Senzo Miwa trial. Thank you so, so much for joining us. This is the platform where we take time at the end of uh, each week, really, um, or the start of the week, if you're counting from Sunday, to kind of uh, you know look back at the week that was in the courts in the Senzo Miwa trial and almost throw forward to what we're expecting in this trial that has been going on for almost a year now, for uh, almost a year. It's been that long. Very little uh, movement has been made. And of course, what we do on this particular space is that we get legal minds. So a legal analyst, we get lawyers, criminal defense attorneys who work in this space um, to come on here and you know share their views on the trial and what's happened in court to answer some of your own questions. We also to take the time to you know listen to what you made of the trial uh, in the week that was and so that's exactly what we're going to be doing here today quite a bit happened this week and um, I think that it's been it's been a rather slow week for me as the reporter in court. I'm going to hear from you guys whether you felt the same, but uh, we've had another witness finally take the stand this week. Mtobozi um, Sitwala taking the witness stand. He was a new witness. Um, of course, he is the fourth witness since the start of the trial. Today, we've got Tabiseng um, Dubazana, who is a legal analyst and a criminal defense attorney in her own right. She's joining us here to help us make sense of what happened in the courts and explain some of the stuff that we might not necessarily uh, understand, right? As uh, some of you as lay people, many people that haven't set foot in a courtroom before may not understand some of the court's processes and what's been happening um, throughout the week as testimony has been given. I'm going to uh, greet you in time saying and also allow you to greet the masses. I'm just going to um, make you a speaker. I'm going to ask that you please uh, oh, there we go. You have been invited to speak in something. I hope you can accept on your side. Um, and we can welcome you to Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial. It's the second time that we've had you on this space, helping us make sense of the processes. And Singh. Thank you so much for having me. You're going to be helping us make sense of what's been happening this week in the Meiwa trial. It's been a rather slow week, um, at least for me, who's been in court the entire week. But, um, you know, I, I just maybe from, I know you've been giving analysis, you've been watching the trial. Your thoughts uh, of the week that was, finally, we saw a new witness take the stand six mm. months since the matter was postponed last year. Yeah, no, I agree with you on the slowness of, of the proceedings, um, you know, but I, I also understand why the witness that is before the box wants to, or what or rather should I say before the court, wants to take his time and ensure that whatever story he's relaying to the court, he takes it step by step. Because remember, he still has to go through cross-examination of about, is it three 
other uh, defense attorneys, it's Advocate Moshololo and the two new attorneys that have been on record. So he, that, that person needs to be sure that once cross-examination starts, then they can answer questions properly. But when we look at what happened in court this week, um, when I was able to log in, because sometimes I wasn't able to as a result of going to court and all of that. But the one time, the, 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 I forgot which day it was, wherein he was explaining the torture or abuse that he went through at the hands of the police. That was a turning point for the state because at that stage, he was basically saying that the statement that he gave to the police wasn't as a result of his own free will. He was tortured to do so. So that for me was like, okay, now we, now we have an interesting case. So that's going to be interesting to see how the state is going to deal with that situation. Yeah. So just for our listeners who may not necessarily have been following the trial, Mutogo Zizitwala was on the witness stand this week. He is one of the people who were present when Senzo Meiwa was killed at the Fosloras home of his girlfriend, Kelly Kumalo, in 2014. Twala was uh, Meiwa's friend, very close friend, and he um, actually had lived near Meiwa's house in KZN and was now living or was visiting in Johannesburg on the day that Amelia passed away. And so he was there. This is an eyewitness account of what happened on that day when Senzo was killed. But it was very interesting, you, as you say, uh, you know, that was kind of a, a peak or a, a climax in his testimony when he started speaking about, um, you know, how he was tortured. He, he It was almost a a very flat, I don't want to say flat, but rather because his account has been so similar to Dumelo Madala and Tavsing, who was the first witness who was in the house uh, to take the stand. It's been extremely similar. It's been almost, you know, uh, exactly the same. The part where he spoke about the torture was really the eyebrow raising moment for all of us, because at some point we all thought, OK, now he's getting into some some meat. What what do we make of that? I mean, he said that you know he he was called to Johannesburg for a, a parade, an identity parade, and he says that he was then tortured, not tortured by any police, but he says he was tortured in the uh, office um, of the investigating officer who was investigating a parallel matter, right? The parallel case. So for those who don't know, this 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 trial is extremely complex. There is a parallel case, CAS 529. That is the case where uh, Kelly Kumalo and those who are in the house, including Togo Twala, are the accused. And the investigating co- uh, officer in that matter was Joyce Butelez. Togo this week told the court that he was brought to Johannesburg by Joyce Butelezi, taken into her office and beaten by men that he does not know that we assume are police officers. What do we make of that? It sounded to me as though a group of police was at pains to have him to admit that they killed Meiwa in that house, um, even though they were all sticking to their story. Yes, so it seems that, like you said, the, the, the two dockets that are before, well, they're not really before the court, but they are part of the evidence that was provided to the defense attorneys. If you recall back when uh, the 34 was still um, counsel for accused one to four, it was a situation wherein um, he complained that the second docket wasn't made as part of disclosure. So eventually the state uh, disclose the second docket to the defense attorneys. So in a manner of speaking, it will be before the court, but currently it's not before the court. Now, having said that, if this 
way if the manner in which he was tortured in order to one if i heard him correctly he was saying that he was tortured one to to point out a specific accused person to say that this is the one that entered the house failure to do that he must confess to having um, been the one of them having um, committed the actual crime in, in on the day in question, right? So remember in the docket that is now part of disclosure, but not the actual criminal docket before the court, that docket, that other one, the Fosloras one, it is where in uh, accused one to seven are all the people that were in the house on the day in question. And then the docket that we are currently seeing in front of the court is where the accused that we see on a daily basis are before the court. So now the question that is going to arise is that the statements that are made in docket number two, I'll call the Fosloras one docket number two. If the statements made in docket number two were done under section 217 of the Criminal Procedure Act, so that is basically wherein you are free you are free, freely giving evidence without any coercion, without anybody forcefully making you uh, give statements and all of that. Now the question is, can the state rely on those statements that are in docket number two after having heard the evidence that was led that he was tortured? Now section 218 and 219 of the criminal procedure kicks in, wherein if the accused person, because remember in docket number two, they are the accused. So if the accused person uh, gave a statement without it being freely and voluntarily given, that statement will not be admitted by the court. So the state is dealing with a predicament when we, when we go forward. Mm. I think, of course, the question is now, and Tabi saying, why would police, or at least this group or faction, um, for lack of a better word, be at pains to have the people that were in the house admit to murdering Senzo Mehiwa? Why, why do they believe so much that the seven people who were in the house are the ones that killed Mehiwa? The problem is this. Here's where we, we, we uh, get excited as criminal defense attorneys. When the state, which is the NPA, instructs the SAPS to do investigations, they are hoping that the investigations will be done so well that when the court, de- uh, the court docket comes to the court, there are, there are no question marks. The chain evidence is done right. You know, um, the investigations were done correctly. The, the, the casings were analyzed properly. We have proper 212 reports, all those things. But herein, we have realized the first witness, if you recall, the police officer that testified, he conceded both under examination in chief and under cross-examination that they messed up royally when it came to the investigations. So there was no clear-cut chain evidence. And if chain is broken, let me explain what chain evidence is. Let me give an example of a murder because it's easier to explain chain evidence with murder. If it happens that uh, Ntabiseng killed uh, Homozo, God forbid, now there is a, a knife that is involved in this situation. It has fingerprints, and it has blood on it. That knife is then put in a, a, a um, laboratory bag with a P number. So the P number is basically the forensic uh, laboratory lab number that will be used when, you get, when, when the item or the specimen then gets to the lab. Now, the person who is taking this knife and the clothing items if necessary and all of those things has to make a statement, right, and says... 
I took this item and then I gave it to uh, Detective X. Detective X has to make a statement confirming receipt of that uh, particular um, item with the P number that is there. And then he has to make a statement if he's now giving it to another person who will then eventually take it to the lab. But if that person is the one who's going to eventually take it to the lab, the person who uh, accepts it at the laboratory has to make a statement as well saying, I received uh, uh, a package from um, Detective X with P number 1234 and in it, it was A, B, C, D. And if in this chain, it is broken in one manner or form, then whatever results that come out in the 212 report, the 212 report is basically um, the forensic laboratory report. We call it a 212 report because under section 212, the Criminal Procedure Act, um, that is how reports are usually structured. So if the 212 report comes out and says that, yes, the blood that was found on Tabisang's clothes belonged to Humoto, yes, the knife that was used there has Tabisang's fingerprints and also the blood on, on it is Yahumoto and all of that. Because the chain was broken, we don't know what happened between the detective that took the item from the scene and what happened in between. We don't know what happened until it got to the lab. There's no way any court will rely on the 212 report as having been authentic. So we've already seen or heard that the bullet casings were not properly um, dealt with. We've already heard that uh, the, the gun, if I'm not mistaken, was found, but it does, it's not clear where it belongs to. So how are we going to link the actions of the police officers with the 212 report that is, before the, that's going, that is already before the court and convict, and convict the accused persons as the ones who did what happened? Mm-hmm. I suppose that then leads me to the value, really, of of um, Togozis' testimony. I think many of us listening, you know, would want to find out what does this te- testimony add to what is already there. I mean, you know, number one, he is the second person that was in the house to give testimony. As far as as I'm concerned, there aren't many inconsistencies or, you know, vast differences between his account and that of Dumelo Madlala. The court has spent, I I believe, too much time um, on him just giving examination in chief. We've spent almost an entire week with him giving examination in chief. I mean, does it add a lot of value apart from what he says about being tortured, which was his own account. Uh, him, I mean, we didn't hear Dumela saying anything about being tortured. But apart from that, does his testimony add much more to what we already know about what happened on the 26th of October uh, 2014? So the court would have to decide the probative value of the evidence before it. Um, but when we look at, I think I, I'm not in a great position to answer that because I don't have access to the docket. You see the difference, the, the, what do I want to say? The advantage, yes, that's the word, the advantage of having access to the docket. You get to compare what the A1, A2, A3 statements say versus what the witnesses say in the docket, right? So right now, we actually don't know how much of a value his evidence has had because we haven't gone through cross-examination. So the reason that cross-examination is important is because we have these A1 up to A50, if necessary, statements in the docket for various witnesses. And if what the witness is saying in the box under examination in chief thoroughly contradicts 
what is in the A1, A2, A3 statements. Then we as the defense attorneys go like, okay, you've gone through the, the state, your evidence rather, and said one, two, three, four. However, there's a statement that you made. Now we have to lay basis for the statement. So when you lay basis, you're basically saying, did you make a statement? Um, did you sign it or did you read it? And all of those things. And once the court has accepted that you've laid basis for the statement, then you can cross-examine the witness on that statement. So now we're going to compare what you said in your statement when there were still investigations happening versus what you have said already in court. And if the two do not match, it's already a contradiction. It doesn't have to be a contradiction to the witness that has previously testified, but it's a, it's a contradiction based on your own version. So now we put it to the court to say, there's evidence that you gave under evidence in chief. Under cross-examination, you've said something else if he, if he contradicts himself under cross-examination. And then there's this statement that you made, which contradicts everything that you have said. So which of these three should we believe or should the court believe uh, in terms of what has happened? So we will only get to understand how important this week has been uh, once cross-examination gets underway and the, and the um, attorneys attack each and everything that he has said based on his own version and also based on the instructions that they have gotten from their clients. Right. This is Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial. My name is Komoto Mudise and I'm your host, uh, lead reporter on this trial for Eyewitness News. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. Uh, I've been seeing some of your comments. Uh, someone here, um, going to be reading them. Someone, John Black, saying, this case is just a travesty of justice. Justice delayed is justice denied. And this is, of course, on the back of how, you know, it really is taking too long. I mean, the fact that you know, some feel that we're making some movement uh, or we're making a lot of progress now when we've had a witness on the stand for the entire week just giving examination in chief and, and, and they're really just comparing it to what we saw last year where we, we had witnesses on the stand for four months. We had our witness, Tumala Majala, I believe, was on the stand for about four months. I mean, that's that's not the standard, you know, and that should not be the standard. Alex Mitchell here saying an entire week of testimony when he was even, wasn't even asked to ID any of the accused. And that's an important point that he makes there because we did see the last witness, Tumala Majala, IDing or at least doing that doc identification of uh, accused number two, Bongani uh, is saying he was among the intruders. We didn't see any of that. It wasn't as dramatic this week from Togozi Sitwala. And I don't think they're going to be doing DACA, DACA identification um, yet, at least, after what we saw with Bongani Danzi uh, last year. Uh, this is still above the law. And we're, we're going through what happened this week with Ntabiseng Dubazana. Ntabiseng, the point that you've just made now leads me to my next question about something that I hadn't seen yet, even though I cover the courts quite a bit. And that was the state invoking Section 190 or citing Section 190 as a basis for them to make corrections to statements by Mtozi Sitwala. So what happened was the court decided... Um, the state had finished uh, uh, examining him or he had finished giving his examination in chief and the state then approached or um, you know told the court that they would be moving to make corrections to what they call inaccuracies in his statements and that just basically means that there were some uh, uh, details that he gave in statements that he made previously that differ to what he said while he was on the, on the witness stand of course the defense attorneys were 
vehemently opposed to this. They felt that they were allowing um, uh, uh, the state to cross-examine its own witness. They felt that it wouldn't afford them the opportunity to cross-examine as they should as defense attorneys. They were very much against it. And, you know, I will say in terms of saying that for me, I also felt like, why, at what point is this, is this, I mean, where do we draw the line? So if we're saying the state can say, you said this in your statement and now you're saying this on the witness stand, everyone could just get an opportunity to change their versions when they feel like it. We saw Mazala, um, not Mazala, Twala making really, you know, crucial um, amendments to his statements. I mean, one amendment that stood out for me is how in his initial statement, he said, I quote, and Longwe Twala let go of the gun. And now he says what he actually meant was Enlongwe Twala ran past the man, the intruder who had the gun. And then we also hear how he amended a point where he had initially said there were five people in the car and Senzo. And now he says, no, there wasn't a fifth person. There was no one in the front seat. I think all of those are points that the defense would have had a field day in pointing out to him. Yet they were not granted the opportunity to do so because the state has gone ahead of them and made those corrections anyway. I mean, how does that work in terms of Sure, I fully agree with the defense attorneys. I don't understand why that application was made. But when you listen to the fact that the evidence, like I said in the beginning, the evidence that he has put on statements, it wasn't done out of his, out of his own volition. So it means that if that's the case, then it means whatever he was saying in court most likely is true. So why is it that the state wants to he wants to put the, what, how do you put it, wants to put the cart before the horse and say, no, 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 wait, wait, let us fix this before you guys get a chance to interrogate it. How, 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 why would you do that? And if the court allows the state to do this without affording the, the defense attorneys an opportunity to cross-examine based on that evidence, it would have been a, a whole disaster. I, it would have been grounds for appeal with immediate effect. The state has to give um, reasons that make sense in, in order for the case not to be deemed basically a travesty of, of justice. So obviously the appeal would have happened once the case is concluded and the accused either found guilty, especially if they're going to be found guilty. So the state, I mean, the court... Um, having to even listen to this application was a waste of time. The state realizes, based on the way in which evidence was given, that the defense attorneys are going to attack the statements that were made by this witness under Section 218 and 219. And if they do that, which I hope they will, then it contradicts and throws out the entire evidence of this witness because it cannot be relied on. The state can then make an application to the court to say, uh, court, can this witness be declared as a hostile witness? Why? Because... They, they are not acting in quotes in the best interest of the state's case. So you see what I mean? Because it felt for me the way that this witness was giving evidence, he did not sit down and consult with his attorney, his attorney being the state prosecutor. They did not have time to go through everything because if you were to looking at the prosecutor's face, when the evidence of the torture, when the evidence was getting contradicted and all of that, his face was one of 
utter dismay because he was like, okay, now how am I going to counter this? Because he wasn't aware what his client is going to say in the box. You have to have time with your witnesses and understand what they're going to say in the box. Ask the questions that you know are likely to be asked by your, your opponents in court so that you can be prepared Wena as the prosecutor and also prepare the witness as to what it is they could expect when this trial goes on. This was a mess. There was no preparation whatsoever on the state's part. That's why they're trying to cover holes by using sections that are going to make this case reviewable or uh, uh, appealable and therefore delaying justice even further should the accused persons be found guilty and then it goes on appeal and they are found not guilty, then who actually killed Senzo all those years ago? See, it's a problem, basically. <laughs> I mean, I mean, but, but can, the, can the defense then come, still come back and say, you said this in your statement, um, now that the state has kind of gone before, right, and, and run ahead, because now the state is saying, these statements have been dealt with, we've corrected them, he's told us what he meant, we now know that he didn't mean that Longer Twala had a gun in his hand, we know that he actually meant that Longer Twala ran past the guy with the gun in his hand. Can the defense still come back and say, listen here, you said this, what did you mean? Correct. It doesn't prohibit them for, from doing all of that, but the state is going to object. They're going to say, no, but then we've already corrected this, so we don't find any reason why the defense has to continue in this line of questioning. So it will be up to the court to decide whether that objection would be sustained or overruled, and then um, the defense can probably go on with that. I think defense attorneys must just also get ahead of it and make an application and request that they be allowed to ask the, the accused person, not the accused, I beg your pardon, the witness questions based on the things that he had already said and what there was corrected so they can understand why was there a need for it to be corrected if it was the truth. You know what I mean? So it, it, it cross-examination at the end of the day allows for clarification of what happened, right? As aggressive as uh, cross-examination can be, the purpose of it is, one, to poke holes in the story of the witnesses, right? And also to try and, and see if you're consistent in your story. If I ask you one question 10 times in 10 different ways and your answer remains the same, then we are able to move on. Otherwise, the court will then say, ah, ah ma'am, please stop fishing. You know, you, the witness has already answered that question. But if I ask you the same question only twice and then I get two different or conflicting versions of what happened, then it shows the court that there is something there that should be questioned and then the court can note it. So it should be allowed. The court ought to allow that um, should that application be made by the defense attorneys. This is above the law, the Senzo Mayua trial, where we take a look at the week that was in this particular trial, in and out of the court. So whatever happens inside the court, but we know from this particular trial that a lot also happens outside the court. Um, and this has been um, a rather interesting week. It's been a rather technical week, not very dramatic, um, but a lot, I think, has come out from from the courts this week, um, the courtroom this week, as we saw Mtogozisi Twala on the witness stand. My name is Komoto Modise. I am uh, the host of this podcast, uh, of this particular uh, platform, the space that we do podcast and upload to 
www.co.za and Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts, wherever you find your podcasts. So, yeah, if you want to listen back to this, uh, it is going to be uploaded uh, over the next few days. I'm going to read some comments and then I'm going to open up for you to make your contribution. We have Ntabi Singh Dubazana. She is a legal analyst as well as a criminal defense attorney. And she's speaking to us, helping us make sense of what happened in the courts this week. Uh, some comments here coming in actually thick and fast. I see someone here, Trevor, saying, the witness seems to suggest that the police have been tailoring the case. They beat him up and told him that what wall or what wall he jumped over, for example. Yes, it's not possible. Is it not possible then for the witness to contradict his written statement in, in court if this is true? So, yeah, I think that's what Ntabi Singh has been speaking um, about, really. Him saying that I've been beaten up, I think, makes provision or makes room to say, you know, I, 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 I was forced to say some of these things. It was under duress, right? But I think it's important to say, Trevor, that he did say throughout his testimony when he was speaking about the beating that ultimately he still stuck to his story. He says, Joy, uh, who was the investigating officer on this case, said, write a statement according to what we tell you. And he says, I insisted and still wrote what I knew was the truth. So he says he stood firm despite everything that's come out. But yeah, it does seem that he's trying to say that th there was some, some docking here with regards to this. It's also interesting to remember that he says at some point when he was taken for an identity parade at the Peter Maritzburg Correctional Services Center, he says while he was there, that ID parade was very rushed. He says he pointed out one person and he said the person has similar features to one of the intruders. And he says police at that point were really, really rushing, trying to get this um, you know, parade and trying to get this person pictures taken. So I do think that the inference that he's making here is that there was a lot of, um, you know, uh, 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 a lot happening behind the scenes, at least, um, to dock this case. Patu Maumela saying, I started watching the Senzo Meiwa, the Senzo murder documentary last night. Why the people in the house on the night of the murder were not thoroughly questioned, lots doesn't add up. And I can tell you that even Afri Forum has said that they believe that there are people in that house who should uh, be in that dock. Pisces says, this case is just a mockery and the saddest part is the family will never get justice. 100% uncaptured said the, the, that ju that judge is the reason why this case is not progressing. And of course, you're referring to Judge Chifiwa Maumela, who is the presiding officer over this particular case. We are asking, is it normal for a case to have two dockets opposing each other? I'm also struggling to understand how was it a robbery when nothing was taken? Um, we've spoken quite extensively on those two dockets. Um, and before uh, you help us with that, and Tabi saying, I'm going to remind everyone that you can just request to be a speaker and we will afford you the opportunity over the next 20 minutes or so, 15 to 20 minutes, for you to make your contributions on this space. But I do want us to go back to that question, and Tabi saying, around the two dockets. Um, this uh, particular listener says, how is it a robbery when nothing was taken? According to my understanding of um, the charge sheet, the robbery charge actually comes from the, the, the theft of a cell phone, Kelly Kumalo's cell phone, uh, who was Senzo Meiwa's girlfriend at the time. So they've been charged with robbery for stealing that phone. Of course, you will remember that there was an indictment that was leaked when this matter was still at the Boxburg Magistrates Court, where the NPA actually had said in that indictment that they that phone had somehow linked Kelly Kumalo to one of the accused. They then 
revoked that indictment saying uh, it's it, that was not for public consumption. So there's questions around that as well. Um, and so he's saying, just help us with these two dockets. We keep speaking about them. We keep hearing them. How, how are we sitting here with two dockets? We know that this isn't normal, right? Ironically, it is normal. It's, never, it's not the first time it's happened. Uh, there's always a situation wherein two dockets are open for the same case because the complainants open the dockets in different police stations. So, for example, the incident happens in Rudeport. Ne? And then I was actually visiting, like in the same scenario here, they were visiting there and then they went back to their individual places and then the docket was open there. And then as the investigations go, it is then note- noted by the NPA that, listen, there's um, a similar docket opened in another police station with similar facts, similar complainants, et cetera, et cetera. And then what they do, we consolidate the other uh, docket. So we make them one. And then... The accused persons in docket A are then added to docket B, depending which one was opened later, because we then added to the docket that was opened later. And then we all, they're all then made into one. And then the investigations are then transferred from the one police station, right? Uh, and put into this police station, because that's where the jurisdiction of the actual incident would have been. So it is not unusual to have two dockets. What is unusual about this situation is that the docket that was opened in Pretoria, we are not exactly sure who the complainant is in that one. That is where I am a bit confused. Unless it is stated that one of the complainants, the, the people that were present in the house, went and opened a docket in Pretoria. That one, how did we get to the docket in Pretoria? The docket in Fosloras, I understand, because the complainants were all there. So that one needs to be explained. But either it doesn't matter that there's two dockets. What should have happened is that when the DPP, yeah, Pretoria, and the DPP, yeah, Joburg, became aware that there are two dockets, the first thing they should have done was consolidate so that all the accused persons are now being dealt with in one matter. It can't be that a docket that was open in Fosloras for the same matter, for the same deceased, is now used as an additional evidence. In Yobana, that one, that one confused me completely. I don't understand how, <laughs> how. <laughs> I just don't get it. Yeah. Especially because... Uh, the the complainants in the one docket are the accused in the other. And we heard last year, really, that, uh, you know, the, 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 the DPP in Pretoria says they're even considering that if, if or once this matter is completed, that is currently before the courts, they could potentially prosecute the people in the second docket, which means the people that are currently testifying in the witness stand could be on the other side at some point, actually in the dock as the accused. I mean... I think that it doesn't get more dramatic than that. <laughs> That's the thing. When I read that thing, I was like, but why? Why are you waiting for this matter to be concluded in order to then prosecute the others? Are you then going to try and exonerate the accused persons in docket number two with the evidence that was being led in, in docket number one? That is not how criminal procedure works. And because the state is taking advantage, got the fact that they are dominus litis, there are messing up this case and the worst part is that this case is being televised so the accused persons in that other docket 
are formulating hectic defenses and the witnesses in that other docket are changing their story and all of that because remember that docket is not before any court as we speak. The normal procedure is that um, in criminal criminal court, witnesses, ne? if you're 10 witnesses in one matter, as one witness testifies, all of you are sitting outside the court and you don't hear what this one witness is saying. That way, when you come in as witness number two, you are coming in with fresh ears because you don't know what was said. And then when you start saying a particular kind of story that doesn't corroborate what the first witness said, then already it's a problem because it means the witnesses are not corroborating each other. This one, in as much as Botwala and this current one are not contradicting each other, for me, it doesn't say anything because unfortunately they've had time to go through all the evidence that was aired and therefore, they can alter and manufacture their statements because they know exactly what the previous witness is. That, for me, is the downside. Yeah, the Senzo Meiwa case. We will never get to the truth because it is being televised. I think, I think they are contradicting themselves because there's a part where uh, Twala was asked, Oguti, the gun that was used there, what kind of a gun was it? You know, because if we are Kumbula very well, Ubadala said the gun that was used there is a revolver. It's the gun that has a wheel. If you remember very well, he said the gun that was used there is the gun that has a wheel. So what kind of a gun that was used there? And we actually go oh he said, I go show or a Because what I know or what I've heard and advocate. Who's at Volvo? He once said the gun that was used there is Chico's gun and it's a revolver because there was a time La Babu Zakonuti, the bullet jacket, because there's like each lock, each lock, I keep a cartridge. More will keep a cartridge. It's palm, let's say revolver, I'll see keep a cartridge. So if you're noticing, it's palm is to will No one, yeah. I hear what you're saying, Fusco. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, um, so I think what happened just for, uh, for the benefit of, of our other listeners, what happened was Twala was asked about the gun and he was asked if he can describe what the gun actually looked like. And it was important to ask that because Tumelo Mazala was able to describe what the gun looked like in great detail. As we heard uh, the, the last speaker say, he described that it was old. He described that it was rusty. He described that it had a wheel, as you, as uh, Frisco rightly says. And Twala hasn't been able to, to describe that at all. But I, uh, sitting there in the courtroom, a big part of me leaves some room, type saying, for the fact that perspectives will never be the same. When the one person is standing at the door and the other standing in the middle of the house, and they will never have the same view uh, of, of the same event that's happening right in front of them. But also, I've also at some point left room for the fact that Malala may know a little more about guns than what, than what Twala knows. And so I didn't feel like that was, um, you know, uh, uh, hectically different. I did feel, though, that it was interesting to see that the two of them who were in the same house could not the one could not describe the gun at all while the other could go into such great detail. You know what I'm saying? You know, um the 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 description of the gun is very important. And I will say this uh based on what um the the, the witnesses have said. Like um our our speaker just now, Glock nineteen, Glock forty eight, for example, 
same model of gun, but different, uh, um, different calibers or whatever that can be used in it. So if you know your guns, you will know by looking at this, now the Glock 19, what does it look like? It's got a plastic feature in and, in and all of that. The Glock 48 is usually metally, metallic and, and all of that. The six hour is solid, solid, so You know what I mean? So you should be able to know now a gun na ijwa. So if you're able to describe it as it's a full gun into all over and all of that, it should fall within that category of guns, which is basically your 9mm's. But if you're going to describe a gun as it having a wheel, there's only one kind of gun, which is a revolver. Yes, the brand is irrelevant. I'm just using brands because those are the, the normal 9mm kind of guns that you will find out there, your 6 hours and drugs and, and all of those things. If one person is able to describe it to the T in that manner and you were in the same room, yes, perspective matters. But now we need to establish how far were you from the perpetrator who was holding the gun? Were you five meters away, two meters away? That's why it's important if you notice in most of um, the, the, the explanations when they want measurements, do you think it was one meter? And it, it, the reason for asking that is so that the person who's going to cross-examine can say, you were in a clear range of view how then could you not have seen this but that person was behind the kitchen door was able to see this how is it possible the 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 little bit i got on the cross-examination unfortunately i wasn't able to watch most of it but the attorney who started cross-examination before he felt sick he said I want to understand what the lighting was like. Those things are very important in criminal matters because if there was sufficient lighting in the kitchen, it would explain why you were able to see the things that you saw. But if the lighting was not as great in the kitchen, then you can't come and stand here and be um, declaring and say with full certainty that this is what I saw, whereas the lighting in there did not allow you to see all of that. So the fact that the description of the gun is that different, it is going to throw this case on its head because we need to understand why then was that previous IO who was um, um, giving evidence in the beginning saying that there were casings there if the gun was a revolver. You know, we need to understand how then we came to these different kinds of conclusions when it comes to the weapon that was used um, at the scene. This is all above the law, the sense of maybe a trial. We have Ntabi Singh Tubazana here helping us make sense of what's been happening in the courts. My name is Komuto Modise, the lead reporter of this particular trial, and I'm so grateful for all of you that have taken the time to join us. Uh, remember, you can still make your contributions right here on this space to and allow you to give your own contributions. What did you make of the trial? this week. Uh, Is it moving fast enough for you? Are we expecting to see um, any movements over the next few days? But also, what stood out for you? It was at the point where we heard Mtogosisi Twala right on the witness stand uh, speaking about how he was tortured and how um, the investigating officer in a parallel case was trying to force him to admit to murdering Senzo Meiwa. Or was it the use of Section 190 of the Criminal Procedures Act where we saw him being allowed to essentially amend his initial uh, statements. And and those statements were explosive. These were statements about how one of the people in the house actually did touch a firearm. That is Longwe Twala. Of course, he's been 
uh, from time to time, really just finding his name just is at the center of this uh, quite regularly, right? So what stood out for you on this particular uh, trial during the week? Uh, so let's read some of your other um, contributions and your comments here. I saw someone asking about people being or the witnesses not being televised at all. So you will remember that uh, the witnesses not being televised started with Dumelo Mazala after we saw journalists really chasing him around the courtroom. And then the court made an order to say that he should not be televised. Of course, he was extremely shaken and he did not want to be seen on TV in that state. We did speak to the state's representative this week, that is advocate George Baloyi, who told the court um, or who told reporters that none of the state witnesses want to be televised at all going forward. And of course, that was after what happened with Malala. So unfortunately, we're not seeing the witnesses at all on screen. And I know, Ntabi saying that is so important uh, for you as a criminal defense attorney. It's important for all the people at home. I've been trying to describe um, a lot of his expressions but I'd imagine you would love to see him there on screen as he becomes emotional, as he chuckles, as he tries to, um, you know, explain himself uh, during the trial. Yes, it would be nice to see. Uh, so you can say, I mean, from experience in, in, in criminal matters, cross-examination, you know the tells that, you know, when Moto Aita saw, it usually means this and all of that. It would be really nice because it will add some meat, at least from my perspective as a defense attorney, to say, okay, if we're like if we're at this point and at that point, it therefore means it will lead to this because part of um, giving um, evidence is not only the verbal things that you're saying; it also your body language. It counts very much uh, into into the into the ma- into the matter that is being heard before the court, and people actually don't understand just how much. I could refer you to so many old cases that have been dealt with, where in the courts are saying the demeanor of the accused does not show the accused having any remorse. His words might have said something, but the demeanor of the accused showed him that he doesn't have any sort of remorse. And as a result, we are therefore finding him guilty. There are cases whereby I have dealt with a culpable homicide and um, the accused's actions he paid for the funeral of, of the deceased. He did this, he did that. But in court, he was so shaken and so scared and couldn't actually give evidence. We were able to do a 105A for him. And um, as a result, he was not going to go to prison per the agreement. It was going to be correctional services. And he reports to prison for about a period of a year. And that's a, it's a suspended sentence at the end of the day. And then the court, when it was giving its ruling on our 105A, he, he said... You know, in, in as much as the accused has done all these great things for the family, seeing his reaction in front of me right now shows just how bad he feels of what happened. And as a result, based on that, the agreement that was made by the state and the defense in terms of 105A, I'm actually making it even more lenient in, in terms of Section 261H and made it a shorter term more than, uh, than what we had agreed upon with the state. So your, the way you conduct yourself, your bodily behavior, your mannerisms and all of that, they're taken into consideration by the court as the matter proceeds. All right. So do you want us to go and speak about the contamination of the crime scene really quickly before we um, throw 
throw forward to the week to come. So the issues around contamination have been a really um, important important one. And I can I, I can say from the previous testimonies that we heard, particularly Dumelo Malala, we saw how he essentially conceded that the crime scene could have been contaminated. Malala spoken about how at some point uh, there were more cans in the dining room. He said, you know, that, um, you know, while they were sitting there, he mentioned a number of alcohol brands that some of them were drinking, but it was very clear from the pictures that were taken by police that not all those brands and not all those cans were represented or could be found in the sitting room. We also saw a statement from one of the neighbors who said that uh, someone with the name Maggie, Twa, Maggie Piri, uh, who's a neighbor as well, had cleaned the scene up. This week, we saw Sipora Musipila, the attorney who had been cross-examining Twala, asking him whether that the scene could have been potentially contaminated. And Twala has not caved in yet, at least. He's insisting that he does not know. And when he was asked, you know, are the cans there representative of what, how much you were drinking or what was being uh, 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 had on that day, he said some of the cans were in the fridge, <laughs> you know. So he really has not caved as as Dumelo had around the contamination of the crime scene. I think we're going to expect that to continue to be a theme this week, Ntabisa? Yeah, most likely. I mean, the contamination of the crime scene is a huge uh, potential in dismissing this case when we get to towards the end because you cannot the state cannot fully rely on what the SAPS has put before the court and says that yes this is what exactly we found and if it is found and determined that people actually tampered with the crime scene they could be charged with obstruction of justice because why would you then remove things that were very um, important in, in in this case and therefore solving the murder of Senzo so as a result, um, if the if the defense attorneys are able to basically crack the witness, then we'll, it will be interesting to see how it works. But the fact that he is saying he has no knowledge, he's basically absolving himself of any um, potential damage or a, a crime that could be leveled against him for you know obstruction of justice and and all of those things um so it'll be interesting to see how it goes as the cross examination continues in the week i'm seeing more uh, comments here someone here saying and somebody saying don't you think that allowing televising criminal trials defeats the spirit of criminal cases and that other witnesses know what others said beforehand unlike where the case is not testified and uh, televised and i know in terms of that you've spoken on that already right about how Really, it doesn't surprise you that they that they are at least for now singing in unison. Correct. I I did say that. I I would I would never advise for any criminal matter to be um, televised, especially one as high profile as this. There can be reports on what happened. You know, there's no need to prevent journalists to come in and report on what happened so that we have an update of what's happening. But it televised it the way that this one is. I mean, even I think it's Madlala. There were times where, in, even in this one, actually, that the current witness, they are also showing us documentary evidence or the pictures and all of that. So the witnesses who are at home have access to the docket as well. It's, it's, it's such a futile exercise, in my humble opinion. It should never have been televised. It should not have been, um, uh, what, this should have been in an order that agrees that this thing be televised. Let's work on just the reports that come from the journalists who are allowed in court but don't televise or 
put it on radio. Right. Well, it is for now still going to be uh, televised and um, we're going to be seeing more happening in the Pretoria High Court tomorrow. Of course, Sipora Ramosipila, who's the advocate uh, that was uh, doing cross-examination this week, will resume. He fell ill on Friday and could not continue. So we saw proceedings being cut quite early. Uh, He will continue to cross-examine Mtogozisi Twala, who's the witness who's currently on the stand. And hopefully um, this week will be enough to have have him cross-examined and, um, you know, uh, re-examined and then it will be done. Hopefully we're ready for the next witness to take the stand, I think. Uh, But, you know, what we're also expecting over the next few days is that we're expecting to hear from the other lawyers cross-examining. So that is two, it's actually three other lawyers now. So we will remember that accused number one and two have taken on their own legal representatives, who is Ramosepele. Accused number three has his own legal representative, who is, I believe, uh, Mnisi, Advocate Mnisi. And then accused number four has his own legal rep, Advocate Mumalo. And of course, Advocate Zandile Mshololo remains as the representative for Fisugulte Ntuli. So that will continue over the next few days. And because there's so many legal reps now that have been thrown in or introduced to this case I don't see it getting any shorter anytime soon. And I'm saying anything you're looking out for for the next uh, few days, um, what are you hoping to hear as the matter resumes? Uh, I'm hoping to see if the defense attorneys are going to actually hammer on the fact that I have been talking about yeah the statements that were made by the witness that were under duress and then uh, I want to see how they're going to deal with the section 190 impeachment application of the state um, in terms of how they're going to cross-examine the witness and then I, I want to see how they are going to um, draw parallels between the evidence of this witness and the others and see if there's any major contradiction that the court should be made aware of. I think that's the trajectory of what this week is going to look like. Right. Thank you so much. I am uh, last round. If anyone does want to make their own contributions, what would they like to see in the trial this week? What should I be on the lookout for as a reporter and a journalist um, as I've been covering this trial? And I will continue to be covering the trial as it returns to the Pretoria High Court. Of course, Mtogazi Twala is the witness that's currently on the stand. And he, uh, we're expecting him to stay on the stand at least for another uh, few days, right, being cross-examined. And uh, this trial, of course, never ceases to amaze us in terms of drama. Uh, Some of the other things that we saw happening this week was the LPC coming in speaking about advocate uh, or disbarred advocate, therefore. And uh, I don't want to put you in a difficult position, but we saw him returning to the court in robes this week, even though he's been disbarred and even though he is um, no longer a lawyer, essentially, as far as we understand. uh, But he returned to the courts and he was sitting among counsel as a legal rep. It was very interesting to see. Um, uh, eyebrow raising for you, Toby saying at all? Quite eyebrow uh, eyebrow raising. I think for me, more so because sometime late last year, if not earlier this year, I was actually on on an interview with him on a on a radio station. <laughs> and they were asking him about the issue of being disbarred. His answer to the host was, yes, the high court said 
uh, I must be removed from the list of, of practicing advocates. But I've taken this matter on appeal. Essentially, section, uh, Rule 18, no, Section 18 of the High Court rules will therefore kick in. That, that rule uh, basically says that well, the, the, the appeal therefore nullifies the ruling of the High Court. Okay. So thereafter, in fact, while we were on that interview, it was myself, it was him, it was Ndetezigalal, uh, he's an attorney in, in Durban. Both of us were chatting on the side saying, have you seen these papers being filed anyway? And we were trying to find them. And there are no papers for appeal. Uh, I don't know if somebody has them. If they have, could they could please send them to me. But without those papers being actually alive in any court, particularly the SCA, he therefore is no longer a practicing attorney of the LPC, and therefore he should not be even addressing any presiding officer in that manner. He can consult, he can give legal advice, but he is not a practicing attorney as far as the papers that are in court say. And yes, I can confirm that there are no papers. The LPC says there are no papers. Uh, Defo has not shown us any any papers, even though we have asked. So as it stands, what I know is that he is he remains disbarred. <laughs> uh, he has uh, told journalists, however, that after his press briefing that he had, I believe it was on Thursday, um, he's not going to be returning to the court. So let's see what happens over the next few days. This does bring us to the end, though, of Above the Law, the Sense of Mewa trial. I'm seeing a lot of you very active in the comments section and not very active on the mic, which is perfectly fine because I will read your comments. Someone here saying, what I'm looking forward to is seeing the court starting on time. <laughs> I believe that's Usa Ketolonga. Look, we all are, but I do want us, I, 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 I need to say that we need to be fair uh, to the judge. And I know that many have been flagging this, particularly on Twitter, saying the judge hasn't been starting on time. The judge has been taking too many breaks. The judge has been present, you know, in the court space on time. Many a time, often I've even been seeing him waiting, you know, uh, 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 on the corridors, even walking out of his own chambers and waiting, being really visible there, waiting to start proceedings on time. But it has been um, the legal reps that have either not been ready, it has been a witness that either still needs to be called. So he, majority of the time, has not been behind the delays that we've been seeing. In fact, this week, the delays that we saw with people not, um, with uh, proceedings not starting on time, were as a result of advocate therefore being present in the court and the judge needing some sort of a indication from his colleagues about what's actually happening. So he hasn't been behind a lot of the delays. I know that there's a lot of frustration around uh, the time that this trial is taking, but I do think we need to be fair. And in terms of, I saw a comment, someone actually amongst, um, in in my threads, speaking about how the judge has been taking tea and has been taking, um, uh, has been ending the matter at around three. He often asks the legal reps do you need to take tea, you know? Um, and they're the ones that request to take tea because they do want to consult or they need to check something with each other. And even in terms of ending the matter, the case is actually uh, scheduled to end at three because the accused need to go back to their uh, uh, various um, uh, prisons, of course, and some are going as far as Modibi and Benoni. But we've been seeing the matter ending even later this week. We saw the matter ending at three, about 3.20 this week. So there has been an attempt to kind of push. So I, I, I do want us to be fair when it comes to the proceedings and the way that they're being handled in the court by Judge Chifua Maumela. A final comment here saying... I'm not a legal mind, 
but I don't see any conviction from the proceedings. And that is the general sentiment, really. People do sound very despondent. People do feel like this is taking forever. Hopefully, we will see this uh, picking up over the next few days. This does bring us to the end of the podcast, Above the Law, the Senzumeiwa Trial. I, your host, Komuto Mudise, will be keeping you updated right here on EWN Reporter and on my personal Twitter at Muto underscore Mudise. I will keep you updated in the form of threads, pictures, videos, and tweets here and there, whatever you need to know about the trial. I want to thank our guest and Tabiseng Dubazana for taking the time to listen uh, and to actually to contribute and thanking you guys for taking the time to listen. And Tabiseng, thank you so much. And I know we're going to do it uh, sometime soon again. Thank you so, so much for having me. All right. Uh, for those of you who do want to listen back, want to kind of catch up on what happened last year, because it has been a long year, um, you can listen to Above the Law, the Senzo Meiwa trial on ewn.co.za, on Spotify on Apple Podcast. Uh, all of the spaces that we've had uh, here on Twitter have been edited and packaged very neatly for you to go um, for your consumption as you try to keep up with this very technical trial. But until next time, from myself, Komoto Modise, the EWN team, and Ntabiseng Dubazana, a lawyer uh, and a legal analyst. Until next time, bye-bye. <laughs>